All right, so tonight's a little different, and I think most of you know this, uh, but this is one of those rare times on a Wednesday night when we're not really going to study a passage of Scripture. So uh, what we're going to talk about instead is the period of about 400 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, or the book of Mark, depending on which one you think was written first. That's, that's something that uh, New Testament scholars disagree about. But either way, it's about 400 years between them, and that, those are considered years of silence. As far as we know, God wasn't speaking to anyone. God didn't send any prophets. God didn't inspire any works of Scripture. And so we don't know from the Scriptures what was happening during that time. But we do know the, the secular histories of nearby nations. They tell us about things that were happening. We know the works of Josephus. You've probably heard the name Josephus if you've been in church for long. Uh, you may not know who he was. He was a historian who lived the generation after Jesus. Interesting guy, and I'm going to one of these days do some more studying about him, but he was actually a Jewish general in the, in the Jewish war against Rome that culminated in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He was a, a Jewish general who gave the Romans fits, and at some point he switched sides and became loyal to Rome. I don't know how he pulled that off, but he then became a historian and, and wrote this, a lot of what we know outside of Scripture about the time of Jesus and the apostles comes from Josephus. So he tells us some of these things. And then there were those 14 books. There are those 14 books that we call the Apocrypha. Now, I need to just do a little sidebar on this for a second. So all my life, I've heard people say, hey, the Catholics have books of the Bible that we don't. What's in those books? Um, so when I got older, I still haven't read the books, but I, I did some study and I, I read summaries of the books and, and what they're about. And, and what I learned was they're nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing in there that contradicts our, at least not in any serious way, our understanding of scripture or God. Uh, there are 14 books that, uh, it, if this tells you anything, the, the Protestant reformers, the, the original Protestants, Martin Luther and, and those guys, they looked at the apocryphal books as good books, but not books that rise to the level of Scripture. So they looked at them the way we would look at a, a book by Max Lucado, for instance. You know, okay, this is fine to read. You don't need to worry about them. It just, it just isn't divinely inspired Word of God. Uh, but some of those books tell us information about things that happen in between the Testaments. And so we get some of our information from those as well. Now, why study this? Because... First of all, okay, I'll just admit, I love history, and I hope, I hope, I know some of you don't, I hope I can make it interesting to those of you who don't, uh, but the main reason is because it tells us a lot about the world in which Jesus lived. And one of the gaps we have, one of the problems we have in our understanding of Scripture is we tend to read Scripture through the eyes of a 20th or 21st century American, as if Jesus was walking the streets of Houston or San Diego or New York or, or London, and he wasn't. He was, he was living in a time very long ago in a culture very, very different from ours. And studying this tells us more about what that world was like and how it got that way. Because the world Jesus lived in was a very different world, not just from our world, but from the world of the Old Testament Israelite. A lot had changed in those 400 years, and I want to talk to you about why that was. So it's broken down into four broad periods, those 400 years. So uh, if you're taking notes, four, you got four points, all right? And the first period is the period of Persian rule. Now, I'm going to go backwards a little bit, but if you read the Old Testament, you need to know the Old Testament isn't laid out in chronological order. 
It's roughly chronological, but the story part ends, and there's still a lot of books left, and those are those prophetic books. So it's hard for us to understand sometimes what order everything went in. Let me tell you this much. If you get, if you get to the end of 2 Chronicles, and you've read 2 Chronicles, I'm very proud of you if you've done that. That's a good thing to do, but a lot of Christians don't do it. When you get to the end of 2 Chronicles, you see something interesting happen. It says, it tells you that uh, the nation of Babylon invades tiny Judah, which is the last bit of God's people that are left on earth. The 10 northern tribes, 150 years earlier, have already been conquered by Assyria, and they've just basically disappeared. They've, they've given up on God for the most part, and they've melted into uh, the Assyrian Empire, and a few of them have stayed behind or been sent back, and they've now become part of the Samaritan nation. Uh, but here's Judah, and they get invaded by Babylon. And the nation, you know, the kingdom, the, the temple is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are knocked down. And most of the elites, anybody with any money, anybody with any skills or, or anything of value to the Babylonians is carried away, those who survive, to, to Babylon. And they become part of that empire. The poorest of the land are left behind. But for the most part, the nation of Judah is bare. So that's at the end of 2 Chronicles, it tells you that. And then it says, and 70 years later, Cyrus the Persian came along and said, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. And you're thinking, what? What, what just happened here? Well, let me tell you what happened here. So you know the story because you've read Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, you know, a great, great king, great conqueror. Uh, but Babylon starts to decline after that. And then one night... Uh, Babylon is conquered, invaded by the Persians. 538 BC is the year. Two years after that, King Cyrus of the Persians says to the Jews, you may now go home, you may rebuild Jerusalem, and you may rebuild your temple. In fact, we'll give you the materials you need to accomplish that. Now, I do need to say this. Not all the Jews went back. In fact, most of them didn't. Think about it for a moment. If you were alive at that point and you were Jewish, you'd probably never seen Israel before. You didn't speak Hebrew by this point. You spoke the language of whatever nation you now lived in. You had a life that you had made for yourself or your parents had made at great cost. It took a lot of work to establish a, a business and, and to build a living and to integrate into society. And, and you're supposed to uproot all of that and go to a place you've never been, where they speak a language you don't speak, where there's no jobs, where there's no security, where there's no infrastructure, and you're supposed to just go because you're Jewish and you're, you're proud of your heritage. So a lot of Jews didn't do it. They probably felt a little guilty, but they stayed behind. We call that the diaspora, uh, which basically is a word that means scattered people. Uh, and and you'll, you'll remember that still existed in the time of Jesus and the apostles. Remember on Pentecost Sunday or, or Pentecost Day when, when they're speaking all these different languages, the apostles are, when the, the tongues of flame land on them and all these people come up and they're saying, hey, how can I hear the word of God spoken in my own language? Those are people from the diaspora. They're, they've never lived in Israel. They've come to Israel for the, for the holiday. This is what that is. So the diaspora Jews, that's people like Esther and Mordecai. That's where that story comes from. Those are Jews who still lived in Persia after some of the nation had gone home. Meanwhile, that little portion that went home, 
that really considered themselves the really holy ones because they, they made the sacrifice to rebuild the country. They were led by people like Nehemiah and Ezra. Now, politically, they were led by others, but those were the two that really did the work of restoring Israel. Nehemiah was the, the, you might consider him a project manager. He was the one who rebuilt the infrastructure, the walls, the city, the security. Ezra was responsible, he was a priest, for restoring the Jewish religion. Because remember, people came back and they never celebrated Passover and they didn't know how to follow God, although they had set up synagogues here and there. They had no concept of sacrifices or any of that stuff. Most of them didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't really know the law. They'd never heard the whole Torah. Ezra has to educate a whole society and restore Judaism. So a lot of the Judaism that Jesus grew up with comes from that period. So if you really want to look at the last three books of the Old Testament in terms of history, it's Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. And then there are those prophets like Haggai and and Zechariah. And then the last of all the prophets is Malachi. Malachi is about 400 years before the New Testament era. You read Malachi and it's basically a prophet saying, God was so kind to us, we got scattered all over the world, and he brought us home against all the odds. We're still a people, we still have a homeland, and we've wasted it. We're still not faithful. After all he's done for us, we're still not following him faithfully, still not living by the law. So that was the era of Persian rule. The Persians could be brutal in a lot of ways, but they were very kind to the Jews. I guess that that was just the providence of God, that, that he just... Made, gave them favor in the midst of their masters at that time. The Persian era lasted about 200 years. And then in 331 BC, there was a guy, you may have heard of him, named Alexander the Great. And he won a battle that you've probably never heard of, the Battle of Guagamela. That was not a battle that had anything to do with uh, avocados mashed up and dipped with chips, but it kind of sounds like it. But you should have heard of this battle. It's one of the more decisive battles in history. The, the Greeks defeated the Persians in the Battle of Guagamela. And it's one of the most decisive battles in history because it changed everything in terms of what language was spoken, what culture was dominant in that region. Think about it this way. If that battle hadn't happened, or if the Persians would have won, chances are the New Testament gets written in Persian, not Greek. Alexander wins the battle and takes over that part of the world, including modern-day Israel. Uh, Alexander dies at a very young age under rather mysterious circumstances. He's only 32. And when he dies, he's got this massive empire. He didn't really set up a succession plan, so his four main generals basically divide up the empire. Now, as far as Israel is concerned, there's only two generals that matter. There's Ptolemy and, and, and there's one named Seleucus. So uh, the Ptolemies, the ones that followed after him, they were in charge of Egypt and the Seleucids were in charge of Syria. And so they fought over Jerusalem for the next couple of centuries and they traded back and forth who would rule. Eventually, the Seleucids won in 198 BC. Now, here's why this matters. Okay, so some of you remember, some of you are old enough to remember when rock and roll music first came, right? First showed up on the scene. And you can remember your parents just losing their minds, thinking, what is happening? Or maybe move a little further in history when when the hippies show up 
and, and, and things get even more bonkers. And, and parents are going, oh no, what's going to happen? What is going on with my kids? Take that and multiply it by a thousand. And that's what the Jews were going through during this era. Because the Jews had been so successful at retaining their, cultural, their culture and their identity for centuries after centuries after centuries. They, they were who they were. And it didn't matter who was in charge of them, they maintained their identity. Now, all of a sudden, you had Jewish parents watching as you know, a little junior decides he wants to go be an athlete. So that means he's competing in the gymnasium or the stadium, which means he's running around naked, literally. And you're thinking, what, who have I raised? Or your daughter says, well, mom, I'm, I'm heading to the bathhouse. Oh, no, you're not. Well, yes, I am. And you hear your son or your daughter speaking Greek instead of Hebrew, and they're not interested in learning Torah. Uh, and maybe they're, they want to marry a, a, an uncircumcised boy or girl. And this is just, this is a, a crisis. And it, it went on for centuries like that. Greek culture, language, fashion, literature, sports, entertainment, you know, the, the, the uh, theaters and things like that, it, it felt to the Jews like an invasion. It felt like this foreign nation had just taken over everything and was, was purging them of all their identity. And so this was a real crisis. And, and so some Jews sort of said, well, I'll buy into some of this just to get along. And others just rejected it entirely. Um, eventually, the Greeks had a ruler, the, the Seleucids, I should say, had a ruler over Israel and, and that whole region whose name was Antiochus, Antiochus IV. He gave himself a nickname. His nickname was Epiphanes, which means the brilliant. He was a very humble guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was uh, determined to make the Jews finally, once and for all, give up their culture and become Greeks like everybody else. He was determined. And so that meant that the temple needed to become a temple to Zeus. And the, the Jews needed to stop circumcising their children, their, their male children. And they needed to stop offering sacrifices to God and, and, all, and, and stop celebrating the Sabbath. What is this thing that you don't work on the seventh day? Everybody works on the seventh day. So he was determined to rid Israel of its distinctive culture. You can imagine after they'd already had all these decades of sort of quiet infiltration of their culture. Now it's top down. Now it's from the government. Now it's violent. And so uh, there, were, there were many thousands of Jews who died during this time. Uh, there were mothers and sons killed at the same time. There was a, a moment when Antiochus and his soldiers plundered the temple and slaughtered a pig on the altar. You can imagine Daniel talks about this in, in Daniel 9, 27 and eleven thirty one and 12, 11. In all three of those verses, he mentions the abomination that causes desolation. And that's what he's talking about. He's foretelling there's going to be a time when this, this person is going to come and desecrate the temple. You, you couldn't do anything more offensive than that to, a, to an Israelite. And then you may recall this. Jesus calls back to that in Matthew 24. So here's your one scriptural reference for the night, as far as I know. Jesus is talking and he's saying, okay, Daniel was talking about Antiochus, but there's going to come a greater desecration later on. So a dual fulfillment. And he's talking about 
we believe, about the Antichrist. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You can imagine how difficult a time this was to live in Israel and to try to stay faithful to God. So that all leads to a crisis point. In 167 BC, there's this elderly Jewish priest named Mattathias in a little town about 17 miles from Jerusalem. And one day, an emissary from the government shows up and says, "Um, sir, you're a priest. We order you to offer a a sacrifice to Zeus on this altar. He says, I'm not going to do it. So another Jew steps forward and says, well, I'll do it. And Mattathias kills that Jew. And when the, when the uh, official comes up and says, you can't do that, Mattathias, this old priest, kills the, the Greek official. Well, that starts a revolution, as you can imagine. And to everyone's shock and surprise, the followers of Mattathias managed to stay alive. Not only stay alive, but they managed to win these unlikely battles. Now, after only two years, Mattathias was an old, old man. He passed away, and his son Judas, Judah Maccabee, You might have heard of that name. That name means the hammer. Judah the hammer becomes the leader of the revolution. And he's really one of the great military leaders of all time. If you ever want to have some fun and you enjoy this kind of thing, look up the stories of the Maccabees and their their wars against the Seleucids. They they mostly ran a military, I mean, a guerrilla-type campaign, so it wasn't two armies facing off head-to-head, but it was, it was hit-and-run tactics. It was ambush. It was things like that. But they would win bad battles even though they'd be outnumbered six or seven to one. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why haven't I heard of this? I mean, I've got friends who are Jewish. Why aren't these guys the greatest heroes ever? Well, there's a reason for that. The Maccabees were incredibly courageous and very patriotic, but they were also extremely brutal, including to their fellow Jews. So if they saw a Jew who was wearing Greek clothing or heard about a Jew who had sacrificed to Zeus, they didn't say, well, you know, I understand it's, it's hard being a Jew these days and maybe you got to compromise once in a while. I, I hope I can win you over to my side. No, they'd just kill them. Now, they'd kill whole villages of their fellow Israelites because you people have sold out to the enemy. So brutal, brutal stuff during these days. But here's, here's where this comes into something you may have heard of. This is two years after Mattathias kills that Greek and starts the revolution. They managed to reclaim the temple. This is 165 BC. They recapture the temple in Jerusalem. They cleanse it of all the pagan stuff, the the altar to Zeus, everything that had desecrated God's temple. They light the candles and they, they rededicate it to the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And today Jews celebrate that as Hanukkah. Now, you won't hear them talk about the bloodier parts of this. They focus instead on the religious aspects, and I don't blame them. So this goes on for 25 years. Uh, In 143 BC, Judah is dead by now. There's, I think, the last remaining brother, I think his name was Simon, is, is still leading the revolution, and they finally win. The Seleucids finally said, okay, we can't beat you guys. We're out. You can have your country back. And so in 143 BC, for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, there's an independent Jewish nation in Israel with Simon the Maccabee on the throne. Now, an interesting thing about it is you would think that the Israelites would rejoice and say, we finally have our nation back. And many did. But a lot of others, especially religiously devout Jews, said this isn't right. Because first of all, the Maccabees, 
called themselves priests, even though they weren't descended from Aaron. And they called themselves kings, even though they weren't descended from David. So all, all along, this, this period lasts about 80 years, from 143 to 63. All along, there are Jews saying, okay, in a way, this is better than having foreigners rule us, but this still isn't legitimate. So there's always controversy. But two things happened during this time that you need to know about. So during the revolution, there were people who weren't related to the Maccabees who fought alongside them and who supported them. They called themselves the separated ones, which in Hebrew is Hasidim. And those are the, the, I guess, the origin of the Pharisees. They're people who they cared more than anything about keeping Israel faithful to the word and never letting them stray after foreign gods and foreign ways. They were very politically and theologically conservative. For the most part, they were middle-class, merchant-type people, uh, and they became heroes to the common man. They became the majority party, you would say, in Israel. There were others in Israel who still thought, you know, it's okay to adopt some Greek mannerisms and to indulge in some Greek culture, uh, but to remain faithful to Israel religiously. And these were the more aristocratic type people. As you can imagine, the surrounding nations looked more favorably on these folks because they looked like them. They dressed like them. They spoke their language. Uh, they had the, the more powerful political uh, people. And even though they were smaller in number, they had more political power because of their willingness to sort of work both sides. Um, and we know them today as the Sadducees. Now, Theologically, they were a little different because they only really believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, uh, didn't really follow any of the rest of it, and didn't believe in an afterlife, didn't believe in angels, anything like that. Uh, the old joke is they didn't believe in an afterlife, and that's why they were sad, you see. So that's how you remember that. So as you can imagine, this whole system was very unstable because you got this tiny nation with all these big powers all around them, and even within this little nation, there's all this infighting. And so eventually in 69, uh, a civil war breaks out, and the Romans, who had become powerful by that time, said, okay, this is an unstable place. We're going to invade and take over. And the Roman general Pompey invaded in 63, and that was the end of this 80-year period of Jewish rule, of independence. So that brings us to the fourth and final period, and that is the Roman era. Pompey, the general who invaded, when he conquered Jerusalem, he, just, he picked one of the Maccabees, a guy named Hyrcanus II, and said, okay, you guys have been ruling for long enough. If you'll be loyal to me, then uh, if you'll be loyal to Rome, then I'll let you continue to rule. He puts him on the throne. And there's this guy named Antipater who says, can I be his advisor? I, I will be very loyal to Rome. I'll make sure he is. And, and I'll, be, I'll be right there for you, whatever you want me to do. And Antipater's not actually Jewish. He's Idumean, which is basically, if you know the Old Testament, they're the descendants of Esau, the, the Edomites. So Antipater, and, and Poppy doesn't care. All he knows is, oh, this is not a Roman. He lives here, and he says he's going to be good to me. He seems pretty sharp. I will make him the right-hand man of Harkanus, the, the puppet governor of Jerusalem. Well, over time, Antipater convinces Julius Caesar, who eventually takes the throne of Rome, you know, I would make a better leader than that Maccabee. 
and he takes over. He dies after a little while and is succeeded by his son, whose name is Herod. You may have heard of him too. Herod was the consummate politician. This is how sharp Herod was. So you remember the old movie uh, uh, Cleopatra with, with, uh, with Elizabeth Taylor and, and Richard Burton, yeah. And, and so Richard Burton is Mark Antony, right? And, and at, I mean, that movie is baloney, but it's, it's got some basis in, in, in fact. And, and so at one point, Antony gets defeated by Octavian, and Octavian becomes Augustus Caesar. Okay, so Mark Antony was good friends with Herod. Herod had backed Mark Antony and said, you're going to be the next guy. Julius Caesar is now dead. You're going to be the next man for the throne, and I'm going to be there to gain the power of being your friend. Well, Mark Antony gets defeated. You would think this would be the end, but because Herod was so crafty and so smooth of speech, he manages to convince Octavian, Augustus Caesar, I was on your side all along. No, I, no man, you, I'm your best friend. And so he gains even more power. Because he was not a Jew, but he wanted to be loved, he decided to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple had been rebuilt in the time of, of Nehemiah, and it was really pretty pitiful compared to what it had been in, in Solomon's time. Well, Herod makes it this magnificent place, this place that there was nothing like it in the ancient world. It started many years before Jesus was born, and it was still going on when Jesus was crucified. I mean, the work lasted for decades. Uh, he also married a descendant of the Maccabees. That's, again, he, he wanted to say, look, look how legit I am. I'm going I'm to marry your, your ruling class. Uh, of course, he wasn't very good to her uh, and married other women after that. But Herod, of course, turns into a terrible tyrant who, who killed anybody who got in his way. And Jesus is born in that time. Now, after all these years, after all these years, one day, an old priest named Zechariah is in the temple and he's offering incense in the holy place and suddenly an angel appears. And that's the beginning of the New Testament. And so there's your 400 years of silence. This is what God did. God was guiding this whole process. It's just a reminder to us that things that seem chaotic to us, things that seem like, uh, oh, well, you know, this can't be the will of God. Look at this awful man who's leading this country or, or this awful thing that's happening. And God's up there saying, don't worry, I've got this. I'm, I'm, I'm sovereign overall. Doesn't mean that everything that happens is the will of God. But it means that God does not let the activities of human beings stop his will from being accomplished. So that went faster than I thought. I hope that was understandable to you. I'm not going to ask you if you have any questions because that's literally all I know. <laughs> but if you need anything repeated, words or, or titles or dates, I, I can do that. And you can do some more research on your own. I think it's pretty interesting. But I will... Close us in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and for your sovereignty, your wisdom. Lord, we know that you're always right. Help us always to trust you, even when we can't see what you're doing. Lord, you, everything you do is for your glory and our salvation. 
And we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.